I want to take you back in time this morning, at least as we begin. I want to take you back to July the 9th, 1941. July 9th, 1941, war raged across Europe and North Africa. At that time in the conflict, the United States had not yet entered into the war. It would be six months or so before that event would come. When a surprise Japanese attack on the U.S. fleet at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, would draw us into the conflict in both Europe and the Pacific. But on July the 9th, 1941, an interesting event happened. Two Oxford scientists traveled to the United States of America carrying a very small and valuable package. They were there to work with U.S. scientists in an attempt to replicate the contents of that package and make it available for mass consumption. The package contained a small amount of penicillin. In 1928, Alexander Fleming discovered or observed certain antibacterial properties of a mold that he named penicillin, that indeed it killed bacteria. But the process of of gathering and producing that kind of bacteria was cost prohibitive. By this point in time, Britain's economy was teetering on the brink of devastation since essentially she alone was carrying on the war on two fronts. And so they came to the United States and they worked with U.S. scientists. And by November 26, 1941, this combined team of Anglo-American scientists figured out a way to increase the production of penicillin tenfold. Human trials were soon conducted and penicillin went into mass production just in time to treat the wounded of D-Day and preserve many, many lives. Of course, we're all familiar with antibiotics, right? They're just a common occurrence in our life here in the 21st century. Untold millions of lives have been saved or improved through the use of antibiotics. A good gift from a good God right in the nick of time. Last week, we spent the whole time together talking about a very deadly disease, the disease called pride. We noted last time that we are all infected by this disease. There is no escape. We also noted last time that it threatens the well-being, not of us, just us personally, but it threatens the well-being of the fellowship of God's people when it raises its ugly head and manifests itself among us. We also noted last time that there is an antidote for pride, and that's what I want to talk with you about this morning. I want to talk with you about the antidote 
for pride. I want to turn our attention to the topic of humility. The topic of humility. Let me begin just by saying this to get the record straight. We are not humble people. We are not. We should not say, oh God, keep us humble, for that would not be true. What we should say is, oh God, humble our proud and wicked hearts. We are a proud people. And we must constantly attack pride. We must do battle with it every day without exception. For in the words of John Owens, unless we be killing sin, it be killing us. And the way to attack pride is by pursuing humility. It is the antidote to pride. So this morning, together, I want to encourage us in that fight. It's going to be a lifelong fight. There will be no relief. There will be no day when you wipe your brow, not this side of the grave, and say, I made it. I exterminated it in my life. It's going to be a constant fight. But it's a fight that we can gain victory in. We do not have to give in pride. So I want to encourage us in the fight this morning, and I want to do it by briefly asking and answering three questions together. I've recorded them for you in the back of your worship bulletin. You can follow along there if you'd like, but three questions that I want to ask and answer with regard to humility so that we might be reinvigorated in our pursuit of this essential virtue. Perhaps you have grown weary in the war. Perhaps you're discouraged. Perhaps you're feeling in your own life the after effects of your own pride or someone else's pride who has splashed all over you and you're feeling discouraged this morning. I want to encourage you. I'm here to encourage you this morning in this essential pursuit. Now, in our short time together here, we are not going to exhaust this topic. Not a chance. It is vast. But we will have enough material by the time we're done here together this morning, to keep us busy for years. For years. So even if we don't get back around to this preaching topic for quite some time, rest assured, when we're done together this morning, you'll have enough food on your plate to keep you satisfied for a very long time. Let's begin. What is humility? Let's just start by asking that question. What is humility? Humility is many things. But it begins this way. Humility is part of the character of God. Let's just start with that. Humility is part of the character of God. I I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 113. The 113th Psalm. Page 621 if you're using a pew Bible. Humility is part of the character of God. We see this. In Psalm 113, beginning in verse 4, where the psalmist speaks of it as a character of God the Father. Psalm 113, beginning in verse 4, humility is part of the character of God. The psalmist says, The Lord is high above all nations. 
His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high, who humbles Himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of His people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. It is the character of God the Father. And that is that humility stoops to help the needy. You see the contrast there. He is high above all the nations. His glory is above the heavens. The creator of heaven and earth stoops to help the needy. That's what, that's what humility is. It stoops. We see it also manifested in the Son. I turn you to Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, page 969. Page 969, Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Jesus there gives an invitation to come and to Believe on Him. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, He says, Take my yoke upon you. It's a call to discipleship. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. I'm gentle and humble in heart. Well, well Jesus, what do you mean that you are humble and gentle of heart. Well, I mean this. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, page 1175. Beginning in verse 5. Philippians 2, chap- chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, Paul says, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I am gentle. I am humble of heart. What does that mean? That means that the Son left the throne room of glory to come into creation, to be born in a manger, to walk as a slave of all among men and to give His life as a ransom for His people. It is part of the character of God, humility is. It is a a willingness to become nothing to serve others. What about the Spirit? Do we see humility in the Spirit's ministry among us? And indeed we do. John chapter 14, verse 26. John chapter 14, verse 26, page 1079. Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, 
He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Turn over a couple of pages to chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. Third person of the triune Godhead. God of very God. Comes to minister. Is sent by Father and Son. For the express purpose of pointing everyone to Christ and His words. The Spirit seeks not to glorify Himself. The Spirit seeks not to magnify His own ministry among us. The Spirit comes to point people to Christ. Three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, each in their own way, humble their heart and demonstrate it is the very character of God Himself to be humble. What is humility? Humility, according to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, is a bankruptcy of spirit that abandons self-righteousness. It is a turning our back on all that we have accomplished and would put before God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Humility is a sign of true religion. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It is a sign of true religion, humility. Humility is hated in this world, but is a requirement for entrance into the next. Matthew chapter 18, page 977. Matthew chapter 18 and beginning in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, Unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humility is an entrance requirement. Not for this life, but for the next. Unless we become, Christ says, like children, that is, no accomplishments in which to boast, nothing to put forward to impress God, but simply to come and faith and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He says you have no part in the next life. Humility is an entrance requirement. 
Humility is also, according to the Scriptures, a prerequisite for honor. A prerequisite for honor. Proverbs 18 and verse 12. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. But humility goes before honor. Before destruction, we're puffed up, the proverb says. But humility paves the road for honor. Humility is the goal of our sanctification. Did you know that? It is the goal of our sanctification. It is the direction in which we have been predestined to go. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29, page 1132. That great chapter there. Paul says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who were called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Oh, we love verse 28. God causes all things to work together for good. What good? Verse 29, the good of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's the good. That's the good that we have been predestined for. It is the goal of our sanctification. It is the direction in which we are being moved, impelled, pushed along by the internal dwelling spirit of God. To become like Christ. That's the goal of life. That's the direction of my life. That's the direction of your life. Becoming like Jesus Christ. Well, what was he like? Where am I going? What is the direction? If I've been predestined to be conformed to Christ, to be like Jesus Christ, what kind of life can I expect? Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2 and listen. Listen as the Apostle Peter brings comfort to those in the midst of trials and sufferings. Listen as Peter says, you poor people who are suffering. I wish it wasn't this way. No, actually, that's not what he says. 1 Peter chapter 2, page 12, 13. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. Well, pick it up in 18, the context. Be submissive with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Verse 20. For what credit is there if when you sin you are harshly treated and you endure it with patience? What credit is that? I mean, if you get what you deserve, there's no credit in it. But if when you do what is right and you suffer for it and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. God works all things together for good. The good is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The image of Jesus Christ is to what? Come on. It is to what? It is to suffer. 
It is to suffer. It is to patiently, humbly endure unjust, unrighteous suffering. Why? Because it attacks our pride. That's why. Because it attacks our pride. You know, some people are afraid. They are afraid to to earnestly pray for God to humble their hearts. I'm sure you've heard this. Maybe you've even said it. Oh, I couldn't pray for humility. If I pray for humility, oh, God's going to bring all kinds of things on me. What a wrong view of God that is. Is God a monster? Is he cruel? Is that what we're really saying? Is God not a good and loving God who seeks and desires our best? And since humility is the entrance requirement into the life to come, since it is the character of God himself for which we've been predestined to be conformed to, should we not pray, O God, humble our hearts? By faith, should we not pray such things? Will not the loving Father bring into our life just enough to accomplish His purpose? Hebrews chapter 12 seems to indicate that. Hebrews chapter 12, being in verse 10, page 1205. The author of the Hebrews here picks up on the discipline that an earthly father brings Because he's cruel? No, because he loves his son and he wants his son to grow into godliness. And so he disciplines him. Verse 10, Hebrews chapter 12, For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us, that is God, for our good, that we, what, may share his holiness. Well, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Can we pray for God to humble our heart in full confidence, believing that He will do what is necessary in order to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, which as Christ's follower, His disciple, should be the greatest and highest goal of our life? Yes, we can and we should. Pray for God to humble our hearts. Humble man is he who acknowledges he has no claim on God, but God has total claim on him. I read that again. It's a definition out of a Bible encyclopedia. I quote, the humble man is he who acknowledges that he has no claim on God, but God has total claim on him. Or another one from an excellent little book, by the way, by C.J. Mahaney called Humility, True Greatness. He writes, quote, Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness or our sinfulness. Or let me offer you one of my own. Humility is realizing that you are not God. How's that? Fundamentally, at its core, humility is realizing that you are not God. 
And when we get a hold of that, it changes how we approach things. What is humility? And what, is its, what are its benefits, secondly? What are its benefits? Well, first, humility puts us in a position to receive the blessings of God. Humility puts us in a position to receive the blessings of God. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. Don't turn there, just listen. This is an amazing statement. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. As Mahaney says in his little book there, humility draws the gaze of God. Wow. Do you want the sovereign God of the universe to look towards you with favor? Humble your heart. Tremble at his word. It's his promise to you. Humility places us in a position to receive the blessings of God. Secondly, the second benefit is humility makes us truly great. Mark chapter 10, please. Mark chapter 10, page 1008. Mark 10 and verse 43. The context here are Jesus' disciples. He's with them. They're on their way to Jerusalem. He is soon to be crucified. And all along the way, they're arguing about who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who's going to get top billing? Who gets number one? Who gets number two? They're all arguing about it. But a couple of them preempt it. James and John, they get their mother involved. And they go to him and they try to work a deal. Lord, you know, give me whatever we want. And when you come in your kingdom, this is what we want. I want number one and number two, right and left hand, top spot, top billing. You can have a higher billing than me, but I want it about, you know, this level. And the other disciples find out about it, and they are absolutely incensed. They cannot believe that they got scooped by these two guys. Okay? That's really what it comes down to. They are not shocked and horrified that they did it. They're shocked and horrified that they didn't think of it first. So Jesus gives them a little lesson here. Verse 42, he calls them to himself. He said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. You know what authority and leadership looks like in the, in the secular realm. You know that it's all about puffing yourself up, making yourself look good, exercising authority. But it's not so among you, verse 43, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Why? Before even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The reason is, is because that's how it works in the kingdom of God. To go up, you go down. The way up is the way down. Matthew says it this way. Matthew chapter 23, verse 12. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. 
There are great benefits in humility. The world will not recognize them and the world will not come beating a path to your door. But in the eternal scheme of things, God does His math differently. And He says the way up is the way down. J. Oswald Sanders wrote a book called Spiritual Leadership. Very fine book. And in there, there's a little section on humility. And in that little section, he has the following quote. Let me just read it to you. On one occasion, when Samuel Bringle, now Samuel Bringle was a, lived from 1860 to 1936. So we've got to put him in his category there. He was a commissioner of the Salvation Army. So on one occasion when Samuel Bringle was introduced as the great Dr. Bringle, he noted in his own diary the following. Quote, if I appear great in their eyes, the Lord is most graciously helping me to see how absolutely nothing I am without him and helping me to keep little in my own eyes. He does use me. But I am so concerned that He uses me and that it is not of me the work is done. The axe cannot boast of the trees it has cut down. It could do nothing but for the woodsman. He made it. He sharpened it and He used it. The moment He throws it aside, it becomes only old iron. Oh, that I may never lose sight of this. There was a man who was practicing humility. God was using that man greatly. But he recognized that it was all of God and none of him. And that God could withdraw that blessing at any moment he chose. Any time. And cast him aside as an old dull axe. further benefit of humility for us is that it promotes peace and unity in the church. Humility promotes peace and unity in the church. Ephesians chapter 4 comes to mind. Ephesians chapter 4, page 1171. After three chapters of fabulous doctrinal dissertation. Paul then turns here, beginning in chapter 4, and he begins to talk about how we are to live our lives in light of God's predestinating grace, of His drawing together in one body, Jew and Gentile. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk or to live in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. How? How? with all humility and gentleness, with patience showing forbearance to one another in love. See, in light of the fact that God is the one who has opened our eyes, right? He is the one who has predestined us unto salvation and that in space and time His Spirit operated onto our heart to take away the scales, to unstop our ears so that we could see and believe the truth and come running to the cross of Jesus Christ. In light of that incredible reality, how are we to live together one with another? In peace and unity, he says. In a humble heart. Patiently. 
forbearing with one another. Maybe God's grace that he has thrown upon you in a certain area of your life, he has not yet revealed to them. Humble your heart. Humility promotes peace and unity in the church. Finally, humility advances the gospel. Humility advances the gospel. For this, I turn you to the right to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, page 1174. Paul's writing here from his imprisonment in Rome, his first Roman imprisonment. And he says in verse 12 of chapter 1, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. That is, my imprisonment, my restricted and limited freedom, the possibility that I might actually lose my head to the imperial acts has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And then listen to this. This is the heart of a humble man. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. But some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Well, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Paul, what are you saying? I'm saying there are people out there that are preaching the gospel and they're doing it for impure motives. They're trying to mess me up. They're trying to make my imprisonment worse. They're trying to push me aside so that they can rise to preeminence. And a prideful heart would say, that's not right. That's not fair. Who are you? I'm an apostle. But Paul doesn't take that approach. He says, yeah, they're not doing it for the right reasons. Yeah, they're actually trying to hurt me by what they're doing. But it's bigger than me. See, the proclaiming of the gospel is bigger than Paul. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than you. Paul says that they're preaching the gospel and in the, people getting saved. And in that, I will rejoice. I'll rejoice. Humility, beloved, advances the gospel. Can you imagine what it would have happened or if Paul had dug in his heels and we had begun a church split, a fight over who has the right to proclaim the gospel and who doesn't? Paul says it's bigger than us, guys. It's way bigger than us. As long as they're preaching the gospel, in that I'll rejoice. It humbles my heart. What is it? What are its benefits? Third question. 
How do we pursue it? How do we go about pursuing humility? By faith in dependence upon Jesus Christ. Let's just begin there. It is not something that comes by self-effort. I do not pull myself up by my bootstraps. I don't get up in the morning and say, "Mm, Today I'm walking in humility. Let's get together. You know, like before a football game, bounce up and down. Humble, yeah, humble. Give me an H. (laughs) It's not how it's done. It comes by faith and dependence upon Christ. It is an outworking of the Spirit of God. It is a spiritual reality. So it begins by preaching the gospel to ourselves. It's really that simple. It begins by preaching the gospel to ourselves. Listen to this quote by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book called Spiritual Depression. Jones says this, quote, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Wow. Listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Talking to yourself about what? Talking to yourself about the gospel. That's what? The gospel. I tried to boil it down here, so let me try this out on you. The gospel. Sovereignty, sin, suffering, salvation, sanctification, and supper. What do you think? All right, let me work on it a little. Sovereignty. God is creator. He is the sovereign creator. He called this universe into existence. He has established its moral code. It reflects his moral character. As creator and sustainer of all that is, it, that is, he is the great lawgiver. And he calls his creation to live in humble obedience upon him, dependence upon him. Sovereignty. Sin. Man refused to live in humble submission to his creator. And so in direct defiance of his creator's command, he took of a fruit and ate that was forbidden to him. And when he did so, Adam plunged himself and all of his race, all that have descended from his loins, into total ruin. In which man now by nature and by choice remains a rebel, defiant against his creator, shaking his fist and saying, I will not have him be God over me. I am God myself. And when man cuts himself loose from his God, from his creator, all kind of moral ruin comes upon the race. Sin. Suffering. Suffering. The the creation itself is fallen into ruin because of Adam's sin. The world is messed up. It doesn't work as it should. You try to squeeze out of it A measure of joy, and it's a constant source of frustration because it is broken. It is broken. Salvation. God entered into space and time in the person of Jesus Christ, second person of the triune Godhead. He came to redeem first a people and then ultimately the creation itself. He came and he died in the place of his people. That their guilt would be punished upon Him, and that His righteousness would be theirs by faith. Sanctification. 
And the moment we embrace Christ as Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God takes up residence within us. The power of indwelling sin is broken in our heart. We no longer must sin. We now have the ability to walk in the Spirit and to pursue righteousness. And God has predestined us to a path of righteousness in which He will someday complete that which He has begun in us. Supper. I couldn't think of a better S one, but I'm working on it. Supper. Christ is coming again. Amen. And when He returns, He returns first for His church, the bride of Christ, and He there will have with them the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is the consummating event. And from there he will return to judge his enemies, to put down sin and wickedness, to bind Satan for a thousand years, eventually to cast him into the lake of fire and bring in a kingdom of peace and righteousness flowing into the eternal state. And it all begins with a supper. With a supper. Sovereignty, sin, suffering, salvation, sanctification, and supper. Get up in the morning and preach the gospel to yourself. Stop listening to yourself. Start talking to yourself. Secondly, how do I pursue humility? By deliberately going lower than we think we deserve. By deliberately going lower than we think we deserve. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5, page 1215. 1 Peter 5 and verse 5. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Clothe yourselves with humility. Literally put on the apron of a slave. Undoubtedly, Peter had in his mind when he wrote these words there in the upper room in John 13 when Jesus clothed himself with a towel and took a basin of water and he washed their feet. Clothe yourselves with humility. That is, go deliberately lower than you think you deserve. I remember reading here a while back about a business executive who in his church taught the fourth and fifth, four and five-year-old Sunday school class. This guy was a big shot in a corporation, making tons of money, bossing all kinds of people around. But there in his church, he taught among the four and five-year-olds, deliberately going lower. Third, yield to the opinions and preferences of others. Yield to the opinions and preferences of others. Philippians chapter 2 again. Philippians chapter 2, page 1175. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Say it this way. Let the other guy have his way. Simple as that. Let the other guy have his way. Not grudgingly, but happily. Let's do it your way, brother. How would you like to do it? What color carpet would you like to have in the worship center? 
Yield. Yield to the opinions and preferences of other people and do it happily. Fourth, seek to serve others in an unnoticed way. Seek to serve other people in an unnoticed way. John chapter 3, verse 30. John the Baptist said, He that is Christ must increase, but I must decrease. This is John the Baptist. This is the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And when the Messiah comes, he says, I need to get really, really small and just quietly go off the stage left. Messiah needs to be preeminent. Serve others in an unnoticed way. You know, I think sometimes we do people a disservice when we honor them for their service. I understand why we do it and and there, there are good things about it, to be sure, to recognize somebody who's faithfully served. But, but sometimes, maybe we really do them a disfavor. Maybe it would be better if somebody were to serve, and rather than us stand them up and, and say, good job, thank you, we're so appreciative, if we were to just say nothing. And then, when the pride wells up within them, when they think nobody, nobody notices what I do, nobody appreciates what I do around here, the Spirit of God would have a perfect opportunity to apply to their heart the lesson of humility. Now, nah, that's a crazy idea. Everybody get mad and leave the church. <laughs> but it is a thought. It is a thought. Do we serve for the accolades of people? Or do we serve for the glory of God? Test our motives. One way to do that, by the way, and what is this? Number one, two, three, four, five. Immediately transfer the glory to God. Immediately transfer the glory of God. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Somebody comes to you and begins to thank you for something. Transfer the glory to God. Say, thank you. I'm, gl- I'm glad you were helped by that. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. As soon as you can, transfer the glory to God. Six. Seek out advice and welcome correction. Seek out advice and welcome correction. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 12. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Proverbs 13, verse 10. Through presumption comes nothing but strife, but with those who receive counsel is wisdom. Open yourself to counsel. Open yourself to to someone come and speaking into your life. Welcome correction. Andrew Murray, in his little book on humility, he writes the following, and boy, this one really penetrated my heart. He said, and I quote, Look upon every person who tries and troubles you as a means of grace to humble you. Look on every person who tries and troubles you as a means of grace to humble you. So that means that on the freeway, You know what I'm saying? And you're in your lane. It narrows, you know, right lane being eliminated. And you're staying in your lane and the person zipping down the right-hand side as far as they can go until they almost have to make a 45-degree turn and 
right in front of you. You know what I'm talking about, right? That's God's gift to you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for doing that. I'm so, I'm so happy that you, that you cousin got to do that. Because I am so proud. I am so proud, and I needed an irritant today. Oh, oh Lord, maybe, maybe when I get to work, there'll be another one waiting for me. <laughs> maybe it's my birthday, and I'm going to get lots of irritants today. It's God's gift to us. It's God's gift to us. Boy, you know what? Seriously, if you can begin to adopt that kind of a mindset, it makes a huge difference. Huge difference. And how you're able to, re- to receive input and correction and criticism. Even if it comes from somebody who's not your equal. Pride is like bad breath. I was thinking about this, so I wrote it down. Pride is like bad breath. Everybody else knows when you have it, even if you don't. Do you ever think about that? You know, you, you got... And you don't even know it. Well, pursuing humility is like brushing your teeth in this analogy. That is, it 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 works. But you don't just brush once, right? And then you're good for the rest of your life. It's kind of this thing you got to keep doing. So if you remember nothing else, you're going to remember this. Okay? Pride is like, yeah, that's it. So brush your teeth, spiritually speaking. Pursue humility. And how do we do it? Well, we pray. We pray. We read the scriptures. We meditate on the word of God. Memorize it. Psalm 119, verse 11, Your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Massive quantities of the word of God. Take it in. Pray, pray, pray. There's one other helpful way to pursue humility, and that's by regularly coming to the Lord's table. Regularly coming to the Lord's table. Listen to these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Gentlemen, if you join me here, please. You know, this is an amazing ceremony that Christ initiated for us, a a time of remembrance. We pass the bread and the cup. You hold in your hand a a little visible reminder that the God of glory, Christ Himself, came to earth, 
humbled himself, took the form of a bondservant, and he died in your place. And he died in your place. How can I be proud of heart when I think on that? How can I be lofty and puffed up? How can I parade my greatness when I think of that? And so as we take of these elements together and we do so on a regular basis, God has given to us a means to continually humble our hearts and remind us that it's all about Christ. And it's not about me. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, I pray that you would humble our hearts even right now. Our Father, that you would cause something that has been said in these last minutes to go deep down within. May your Holy Spirit apply to us the truth that you are God and we are not. That we are the creature and you are the creator. That you are holy and we are not. That you are eternal and we are temporal. That you are self-sufficient and we are entirely dependent. That you are righteous and that we have an alien righteousness as a gift from you. O Lord, as we eat this small fragment of bread and drink this small cup of juice. May your Holy Spirit remind us once again of what Christ has done. How His death, burial, and resurrection has assured redemption for His people. And that His resurrection assures His return. He's coming again. Oh, Father, may you enable us by your grace to long for, to look for, and to be ready for that return. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
simple reminders, aren't they? Christ has given them to us and invested them with such great, powerful meaning. Every time we take, he says, we proclaim his death till the Lord comes. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Gospel writers tell us that on that night, as they left, finished their meal and were ready to leave the upper room, they sang a song, Ron. So that sounds biblical, so how about we do that? 